Hello and welcome to episode 89 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. Not this week, though. Yeah, no Pioneer this week. <laughs> Who needs it? The format is suspended. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, you know when I feel the least creative in life, it's when you say those words and I have to think of something interesting to talk about right away. And I don't have anything planned. It's just like life life is one foot in front of the other, one day at a time, one cat jumping in the window at a time. That's the best part of life, Stan. Hang in there, Shane. Hang in there, baby. Dr. Cat's squiggle vision. Hey, speaking of cats, mine's wearing a cone right now. Oh, no. You guys both have cone? Cone cone pets? That's my favorite Hitachi toy from 1997. It's my favorite sequel to Coneheads. Cone pets. Cone pets. <laughs> Weirdly also starring Dan Aykroyd as a dog. <laughs> yeah, as the voice of a dog, not an actual dog. It's me, Dan Aykroyd. I'm a dog this time. Also with us, the godfather. Dave Harburger. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to give you all a little pet update since I know the listeners want it. They need it. They're wondering. Uh, I didn't get to tell people that after I recorded last week's episode, the dog was crying so much that we had to sleep on the floor next to him in our office for the next three or four nights to just calm him. So I kept waking up with a cone-headed dog's head on my lap <laughs> in the middle of the night, slept on a couch cushion in in. <laughs> Not my bedroom on the floor. That's definitely what you want to do in your early forties. Yeah, it's great. It def, but he's doing much better now. He's happier. He's. I caught him jumping earlier, and I was like, "You cannot jump again, ever, dog." <laughs> Those knees are gold. <laughs> he, he's like the kid in uh, Rookie of the Year. He's now got super legs. Oh yeah, exactly. So Walter's fine. Everybody, thank you for your concern. Appreciate it. Andy will be okay. Thanks, thanks, Dave. Shane, we for know. your concern. <laughs> It's just a cat. <laughs> I've got two of them. They're indestructible. <laughs> it's sad because he's clearly depressed from wearing the cone, but it's it's sweet because now he's so much more affectionate because it's like he looks to us for comfort. So I honestly might keep him in the cone forever. On this week's episode, we're doing a special patron-requested topic made possible by one of our top-tier supporters, Bob P. Bob asked us to revisit Modern Staple Dredge. And this is the first time... I believe it's the first time that we have ever really rehashed a deck in full dive down form. It is. It's the first. It's the first redo. 89 episodes with no redos, although there's been at least five prowess episodes in there yeah. in secret. But I honestly thought we'd, we'd do this earlier. I thought we would kind of have to recycle or it would make sense to recycle. Also, I mean, just a little peek behind the curtain. My one of my original visions of this podcast was that we would do a dive down every week. Yeah. Like every week would be a dive down, basically like a deck dive. And clearly that was unsustainable and unnecessary. <laughs> There's other stuff to talk about, right? People, oh, yeah, yeah. Too much. So, yeah. Last time we talked about dredge. Faithless looting was still in the deck. So we'll see how much has actually changed since then. It was episode 11. Is that right? 11. So it has been at least 78 weeks since we covered it. That that was honestly, I think that was like my, my, my early proudest episode. Like I felt like that was a pretty good deck dive and I worked really hard on it and I'm really glad to revisit it because it's like, the deck is is different, and we're so much more experienced in doing this. And it plays similarly, but different. And it just requires different lines of 
thought and it's just a good deck to revisit and I'm glad that Bob he suggested it. We're so much better at making content and so much worse at playing magic now than we were <laughs> 78 true. episodes ago. Well, by the time we made this episode I learned not to target my opponent with tree corn. Lesson <laughs> 1. <laughs> I thought it was to mill them out. All right. Before all that, we're going to kick off the show with a breakdown of some recent modern events, including the latest installment of Cool Decks Incorporated. But without further ado, let's do a little housekeeping. Greetings and thank you to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation, Martin S. and Tyrell S. No relation. You know Martin, don't you? Martin is a very good friend of mine. Yes. Uh, Dave has met Martin, actually. Yeah. Dr. Martin, right? Martin's a doctor. Yep. Mm. Also, big thanks to Moldrotha7912 for the review on Apple Podcast, who apparently appreciated our Storm app enough to review us. So there you go. We did it, boys. We inspired someone. I just want to go back and say that I'm a huge fan of Dr. Martin's shoes. I forgot to mention that a minute ago. Sweet. Nothing. We're going to cut that joke. (laughs) Dr. O. Oh, man. Uh good it's a good one all right all right fine fine i missed the moment i made it worse all right dave we get it you're goth you're the goth host (laughs) so um we mentioned the patreon earlier uh bob p one of our he's he's kind of like made his own stratospheric tier which is kind of amazing um but if you want to join at even one dollar an episode you get immediate access and by immediate i mean like as soon as i see the email i'm adding you to our super secret slack server uh going up from there gets you various benefits like you know custom tokens we had designed uh custom stickers and pins that dave has designed and we've had printed uh play mats Eventually, when we hit this uh, deck box stretch goal, we'll have custom deck boxes for everybody. So yeah, it's a good way to help us out. It's a good way to keep us going. And we appreciate everyone who is a Patreon. So you can head over to patreon.com slash the dive down and check things out. And if you'd like to support us while you're playing Magic, uh, you can always check out manatraders.com, the card rental service that we use for Magic Online. Great rental service. The next, uh, they're well known for their tournament series at this point as well. And next tournament series is going to be modern. So you know we're going to be in there again. You know I'm going to go 2-7 in those first matches and drop. Stan's going to make day two. But um, yeah, so check out manatraders.com. Uh, if you enter code the dive down as a new subscriber to Mana Traders, you will get 20% off your first three months of rental service and we'll get a little bit of a reward for it. So uh, appreciate you checking us out and checking out manatraders.com. All right, now we're going to jump right back to Dave for this week's news desk. Oh, hey, Dave. All right, so this week for the dive down section, we're going to take a look at a few magic online events, of course, from modern. Um, the first one I wanted to take a look at was the Modern Mox Showcase Qualifier, which was a premiere ish level event. I don't know quite what you would call this on Magic Online. It was an event that had to be qualified for. And the player pool was 28 players who were absolute Magic Online grinders. Um, The results are not to these tournaments are not posted by WotC for some reason, which I think is really strange because I think it's pretty cool content to get to see. It's a small pool of players. It's a pool of players that know each other well. And so they metagame against each other some. And so I think it's interesting to take a peek in and see what some of the best and most frequent players on Magic Online are doing when they know they're going to be playing 
each other. Uh, I want to talk about the top eight, and then we'll talk a little bit about the broader field. I do want to give a shout out to Jonathan Zhang, or at Final Nub on Twitter, who posted the breakdown of all the different archetypes that were in the tournament on Twitter. So I appreciate that. Had a little bit of a metagame analysis that I will be mentioning and taking from here. So uh, Jonathan Zhang, thank you very much for putting that up. Which is the Coast, if you're listening, and I know you are, please post these tournaments to Magic to MTGO decklist that I search for on Google because why not? These are the good players that you have. I know that you're not covering these events, but like, let us see the deck lists. I don't think they're intentionally withholding them. I think they're they constantly have computer issues. Mm. The one like Windows NT machine that's in the back aggregating deck lists is just falling apart all the time. Yeah. So so wizards, if you're listening, just unplug the computer and then plug it back in. So let's hop into this top eight. So when I said that this de- this top eight was filled with Magic Online and real life grinders, I really meant it. The person who won this tournament was Dylan Donegan, who I did not know, uh, I did not recognize his on-screen name, which is Son of Nothing, won the event with Boggles. That's right, Boggles. When you don't expect Boggles, they appear and multiply. Yeah, I, I, it's definitely going to be something to talk about once we look at the rest of this field, but it's interesting that you know he had said in his tweet where he talked about winning that he took a shot on metagaming the tournaments, chose this deck because of that, and felt like that was a large portion of why he won. There were a few other people on Boggles in the field as well, which is interesting to see. In the finals, he defeated uh, David Inglis, who is known as Tangrams, online, who's a player who comes up quite often in high-level tournaments in Modern. And uh, David was on Bant Field, which is, guess what that is? It's just a Bant Uro pile that has even more Fields of the Dead than the decks that we talked about last week did. Why not? Just add it. Yeah. These Bant decks have gone from kind of having one Field of the Dead as a kind of fun splash up to between two and three as kind of a main win condition of the deck with your Uros and your Teferis and your Cryptic Commands and all of that kind of stuff. So it seemed like in this tournament anyway that Bant was sort of the Uro deck of choice with a couple of notable exceptions. Bant Field. Bant Field. My God. Mick Winsauce, Tom White, well-known control player, also on Bant Fields. And fourth place was Musasabi on Green White Titan, which is a deck that we talked about a little bit last week, that new version of Titan. Now, this list I could not actually get access to because it wasn't shared, but I saw that uh, Jonathan had Zhang had posted in his tweet of the metagame breakdown that that's what Musasabi was on. Not sure if it's the exact same deck that we talked about last week that has the, um, has the Aether Vials and all that kind of stuff in it, but very well could be. In fifth place was Wombo Combo 2020 on Druid Luris. So we had a combo deck here. Uh, Danny M. Rebel in sixth place with Boggles again. Nosferatu with Blue Red Prowess. And finally, Doom Switch, not Doom Wake, who was previously destroying Magic Online. Uh, Doom Switch, also a well known blue white based control player, top aided with Bant Field. So it's three Bant decks. Two Boggles, one Green-White Titan, one Druid, one Blue-Red Prowess deck. How do we feel about this top eight? Uh, I mean, you don't like to see that much of the same deck, right? I mean, 
either it's indicating that these sort of bant uro piles are becoming more and more refined to the point of overpoweringness, or it's just a random tournament where really good players brought out a very good deck that they had some reps with and and won with. But I, I love the I love the boggles sort of juke. You know, it, it's we've seen people bring boggles to things like you know, like I remember that like time like like reduke brought it and like went to some like quarter or semifinals and some big invitational tournament. Cause it's just like, no one's going to expect this. Yeah, exactly. And I think when you look at the greater metagame breakdown of the whole tournament, again, 28 players. Uh, and again, these, this metagame breakdown I took from Jonathan Zhang. I looked at it myself and did the division myself as well, but he also posted it on Twitter. Nine decks out of the 28 were Bantfield or Teamer Wreck, which is the uh, kind of like another take on an Uro deck, essentially. So Jonathan referred to those as blue soup decks, and I think that that's kind of fair. They're just these kind of like blue-based Uro decks, essentially. But the second most popular deck was Red Aggro, which is how uh, Jonathan Zhang had put them together. Six Prowess decks, one Burn deck. So there were seven decks that were kind of red aggro. And so if you look at those two decks together, I do think that Boggles makes some sense, right? Boggles is hugely problematic for prowess, for one thing, because anything that can gain that much life just makes it really hard to outrun them. And I think that given that the Bant decks seem to have shaved a lot of Wraths and have gone for point removal instead, they don't really have a game plan against something that becomes an 8-9 Vigilance first striking lifelinker. Uh, for parts of the game with hexproof, so that was those were the top three decks in the meta. Basically, uh, Boggles was was a distant third with only three decks, but two of them made the top eight. Here's what I would say: This is not giving me reason to want to bring Boggles or start playing Boggles in queues, but it is interesting to see these players who really know the game well and the environment well metagaming against each other. Well, what do you think is different about a tournament at this level and queues, though? I just think that they have a much better idea of how up-to-date and in the metagame the players in this tournament are. And they know each other's kind of tendencies for what kind of decks they're going to play. They probably had a good idea of who was going to be in the field already. You know, there were lots of other people in this field. For example, Sodak was in 10th place on Dredge. Hugo Friedis 1 is a Magic player who I think pretty much grinds Storm all the time, was in 18th place on Storm. Sam Pardee was in 12th place on Teamer Wreck. That's Smidster. Selfie Sec was in 22nd place on Luris Burn. And Arceus Dota, I think, is a well-known player, too, on Green Tron. So I think that they had an idea of what people were going to bring. And so they kind of... There's a, an ability for a number of players in a pool this size to just change what they're doing. And then some players took the chance to kind of next-level everybody because they felt like boggles was going to fit in with the way that the metagame was going to expect it to play out. So I think it's vastly different between the queues where the queues are filled with people like the three of us who are just playing what we like more so than trying to win a particular tournament, right? You mean like when I register and soul artifact in a modern league? Sure. Yeah. Or when I just won't stop running blue red prowess, no matter what, you know what I mean? Like, so I think that's the big the big difference here, and I think that that's kind of like why it was interesting. And and the story maybe is that the meta call worked out because Boggles won. It also came in sixth place. Tough to um to be upset about taking a chance on something like that when it works out. 
I do think maybe it's time to dust off our chokes and boils again. I'm not sure if those have been quite as popular as they were before Astrolabe got banned, but if Uro Soup is like potentially the deck to beat more so than Bogles, which is just kind of like the metagame choice to beat the current control leader, maybe if you just blow up every island, that's good enough. I mean, I think that that is what a deck like Ponza is going to be doing for sure to kind of add to it. And Ponza was also, I think there were two copies in the, um, in the, the 28 of that. Neither, none of them made the top eight, but I think that there were a couple of people, including uh, the player who uh, was on blue red prowess, I think mentioned in the tweets that where they were talking about a tournament that said they felt like they wish they had played Ponza instead of prowess, even though they top aided. Imagine being a good enough player to have, feel bad about the deck you chose, even though you top eight it. <laughs> <laughs> That's real perspective, you know? I mean, it's just one of those things that just reminds you, like, the players who end up in these tournaments are, like, another level than a lot of me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's talk really quickly about two pretty interesting challenges that happened on Magic Online after this. And I'm going to go through these quick, so we have plenty of time for dredge. But Saturday's challenge and Sunday's challenge are both pretty interesting. For Saturday's challenge, I'll go through the top eight pretty quickly, but the first place deck on Saturday's challenge was Bant Urza. So it was won by an Urza deck, but not Grixis, not Esper, like maybe we've thought about a couple of times, but Bant. And so why do you think it was Bant? Stan? Burrow. (laughs) It rhymes with Burrow. Yes, it rhymes with a really great sofa. Burrow, Burrow, hit us up. We need a sponsor. Um, Get at us, Burrow. We need lifestyle sponsors. Yes. This was an Urza Thopter Sword combo deck with Teferi 3, Uro, and Path in it. And so that's how it ended up as Uro, as a Bant instead of something else. Second place, Rakdos Luris Aggro. So Black Red Prowess, essentially, by Dreams of Ashiok. Also, I should mention that the turner that the Bant Wars of Pilot was H Cook 725. So the second place deck was Rakdos Prowess. And it, it was also in fourth place was a Mardu version of the deck, which is, you know, very slightly different, has white for a couple of extra cards, a little bit different choices as far as, you know, the Rakdos deck tends to tends to run Cole against Command, for example. The Mardu deck tends to not run Cole against Command, so it has a slightly lower curve. But they're very close to the same deck. And um, the fourth place player was Goblin, underscore Goblin Lackey. Um, the more aggro version that was in fourth place has mutagenic growth and a few other things like that. And there were lots more of these decks in the top 82 of this field third place amulet titan amulet titan haven't seen it in a minute here it was stock list it's always waiting yeah it's always waiting to be good i wonder if big j Koo, the pilot of this deck if they're just you know an amulet master and this is their time that they nailed it nailed it you never know right i mean i think that there's not a lot of stuff that's good against big mana here in this top eight at any rate so they got a chance to sneak in fourth place we talked about Fifth place is a deck that I would like to talk about for a minute with everybody. Of course I would, because it is a the latest, hottest tech in prowess right now. And the pilot of this mono-red aggro deck, as it's listed on Goldfish, is Yama Killer. He's been streaming this a lot. Well, I think that a lot of people have attributed this deck to a player called M. Hayashi, who is the trophy leader 
in modern right now and has been for much of this season and actually a lot of last season as well. It's not a player I'm super familiar with, although I did find their Twitter account today, which is mhayashi5578021. But this player's been around a lot. I haven't noticed them in any of the big tournaments, like challenges or things like that, but consistently at the top of the trophy boards, lots of 5-0s in the league dumps. This deck is Obosh Prowess, okay? (laughs) Which is really interesting because what it means is you cannot run even casting cost spells. And one of the spells that you can't run in this deck is Manamorphose. So it's a mono-red prowess deck, essentially, that does not run Manamorphose. Stan, what do you think about that as a fellow prowess person? I think it's amazing. I love this deck. I've already rented the deck. It's sitting in my MTGO account. I played a couple matches before we went to record today. Oh, that's awesome. Let me, t- let me outline a couple of the other differences, and then I will turn it over to you for some thoughts. So a couple other notable differences from this and the normal prowess decks is that Blister Coil Weird is in here as another one drop in addition to Monastery Swift Spear and Soulscar Mage. The deck is running full playsets of Bone Crusher Giant and Seasoned Pyromancer, so it has 20 creatures in it when generally most of the prowess decks only have 16 or so creatures. It's not running Bedlam Reveler, of course, because that's an even-numbered spell. Uh, Season Pyromancer is pretty interesting to see as sort of a mini draw card, plus if you want to go wide, plus you get that um, kind of utility out of Bonecrusher Giant. And then in the spell suite, it's running Burst Lightning, Firebolt, Lava Dart, Lightning Bolt, Light Up the Stage. And that's it. Mm -hmm. All right, Stan, so you've played a couple of matches with it, or a couple Yeah. yeah, what do you think? I love it. This is probably the most fun I've had playing Mono Red Prowess in in ages. You know, I I'd never really loved the Is It version of the deck. And what I like here is that all of the burn spells are good, especially when you cast an Obosh, they're really good. Um, so it kind of has like that top end burn plan if you need to finish the game. Like on on, on turn six or seven, like a fire a flashbacked firebolt. We'll just do it. Or if you're able to kick a burst lightning, you're hitting them for eight. And I just love that about it. The most interesting thing to me about this build, honestly, is that it has it is it has like no cantrips. There's no crash through, there's no metamorphose, there's no Mishra's bobble. It's Spyro and light up the stage that draw you cards, and that's it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting that you can't really grind through your deck the way that you are kind of used to and do these, I, I don't know, do you still get to do a bunch of multiple spell turns with this build or is it a, a little bit of a different take because you don't get to cantrip so much? So, I, you know, I played it similar to how we learned to play Is It, whereas I'm really just trying to use my burn spells to pick off creatures. I'm playing like a tempo strategy until I'm either ready to close the game or if I'm out of creatures and like I just need a plan. Um... I will say regarding Seasoned Pyromancer, that's a card I always really liked in Mono Red Prowess decks. And I, I often felt a little bit alone in that. And when we talked to Ryan uh, over Turf once upon a time, he was pretty negative about that card and just said Bedlam Reveler was better. So maybe one of the reasons why I've been impressed with this list is I, I feel a little vindicated in the power of Spyro, like in this style of deck in particular. Though I will say, like, it's basically never making tokens. You get to cast it because you just run out all the cards in your hand like fairly quickly. Interesting. 
it's a cool deck. It's definitely a deck that I'll try. No surprise to anybody there. The last thing I'll say is that um, M. Hayashi has a pretty good little seven or eight minute deck tech that I watched today uh, that if you do a search for them on Twitter, you will find it. All right, so let's close out the rest of this top eight. Sixth place, Humans. Spider Space was the pilot of this Humans deck, which was cool to see. Um, not... I haven't noticed Spider Space playing humans before, but um, was really cool to see. And also, they were really excited about it on Twitter, saying that they thought that human people saying humans are dead is way premature. Um, and then QB Turtle on Ponza and Jack Cashtan on Adnaz in eighth. Both of those were kind of stock, except for the fact that QB Turtle was running four Elder Gargaroths in Ponza main deck. Whoa! Baboom. Just main deck Elder G, huh? At this point, full play set. I, I think it's because of prowess. Yeah. If prowess dies down for whatever reason, I can see this deck just going right back to Glorybringer. But because of prowess, that repeatable life gain and a really potent blocker that could potentially make additional three threes, I think is good enough. Yeah. Interestingly, this metagame, this top eight metagame has no Euro decks other than the winner. And the overall metagame had a lot of prowess and a lot of humans. So it's kind of interesting to see how this one is different than the uh, Mox Showcase one. Let's go on to the Sunday challenge very quickly because we're running out of time. <laughs> but I would like to note the top eight here, which is that this tournament was won by Blue Red Prowess. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, you're happy then. Yeah. So there was Blue Red Prowess in first place and third place. The winner was underscore stream. And the third place player was Hot Bread. These are great <laughs> screen names, everybody. Great work. Take the rest of the week off. The only thing that was interesting about Stream's deck that won was that there is a Brazen Borrower main. Fun to have. Yeah, tempo. Yeah, exactly. Tempo. Tempo it. In the rest of the top eight, there were three Uro decks. There was a Saltai deck in second place by Feyrox. A fourth place deck was Bant by Bills Live. And in sixth place was a Bant control deck that was kind of Stone Blade, but had Uro in it by Vixie P. There was one Tron deck in fifth place by Bernatoris, one Jund deck in seventh place by Oscar Framco, and a Soul Herder deck by CFTSOC03 in eighth place that also had Uro. So half of the decks in this top eight had Uro. Two of them were prowess decks, two one-offs. So this one is very different from the other top eight where there were no, there was only one deck with Uro and it was kind of like a combo deck, you know, much more that mid-rangey value Urza deck. Anyway, here's the highlights from the top eight that I thought were interesting. In 14th place by Doug H. Hater was just a blue-green deck that is basically like a primetime lands deck, like a Field of the Dead Valakut deck with no primetime, only Uro. So it had Uro, Dryad of the Elysian Grove, Splendid Reclamation, Our Promise, and Gifts Ungiven. You guys seen all the talk on Twitter in the last week about the hot new tech that is Gifts Ungiven plus Uro plus lands packages? Oh, no. Yeah. People figuring some things out. People trying some stuff. I mean, Spike, uh, Aspiring Spike was playing, was streaming a Bant deck with Gifts Ungiven earlier in the week last week. It's funny that we kind of mentioned, why aren't people playing this card in more decks? There must be other decks that this card could be useful in. And then all of a sudden, there's tons of people out. You know, we had nothing to do with it. I think it's just a random observation that coincided with what other people were doing. But pretty cool to see. In 17th place, we had a Slivers deck by Turn 1 Vile. What a perfect 
perfect screen name for a Slivers deck pilot. Not much more to say about that. 18th place, Caleb Shearer on Storm, who obviously didn't listen to how much Stan hates playing Storm right now. Love the deck. Hate the metagame. Yeah. And then the last deck that I actually wanted to take a minute to talk about in this tournament was the 20th place deck by Zixion631, who is one of our patrons, who almost got there in the top eight with this wild brew. Do you guys see his deck? Mardu Sunforger. This is a Mardu Sunforger Stoneforge Mystic deck that he's been talking about a bit in our Patreon. And then mentioned, you know, oh, I think I'm gonna, I think I might have a chance at top eighting, and he he missed the top eight on breakers. But this deck is wild. It's a Stoneforge deck essentially with a novel equipment package, three swords, batter skull, and sunforger. So it's got a little bit of extra equipment than a lot of Stoneforge Mystic decks have. Do I need to read Sun Sunforger? I think I will. Real quick. Sunforger is an artifact equipment. Equipped creature gets plus four plus O. It costs three mana to cast. It costs three mana to equip. It has an activated ability that says red, white, unattached Sunforger. Search your library for a red or white instant card with converted mana cost four or less and cast that card without paying its mana cost, then shuffle your library. This is a card that I've seen people play in EDH, notably Shane playing EDH before, but it, it's this wild thing that lets you do what's essentially like a utility package in your Stoneforge Mystic deck with spells. And so this deck has cheap creatures to equip spells to. It's got Giver of Runes. It's got like Fervent Champion. It's got Giver of Runes to lend some protection. It's got Ranger Captain of Eos to do some searching. Grim Lava Mancher. It's got your Stoneforge Mystics. And then the spells package is just like random one-ofs that allow you to use Sunforger to kind of get yourself out of whatever specific situation you're in. For example, there's a counterspell in there in Lapse of Certainty, which is essentially uh, memory lapse. So it you know puts a card back on top of your opponent's library. There's a chance for an extra turn and chance for glory if you want to use that. It has a single Angel's Grace in it. But anyway, it's got all these different spells that you can do random stuff with. And because Sunforger searches up things and lets you cast them without paying the mana cost, you get to do a bit more kind of work with it. So you can you can be a little bit like kind of higher end with the spells that you're casting, you're grabbing with it because you don't have to pay for them. Yeah, I really love the little combo between Sunforger and Fervent Champion, which so this deck runs four Fervent Champion, which makes equip abilities cost three less. Sunforger equip three, you do it for free. And then you basically use your like two mana red white Sunforger ability to cast free K commands. So it's like a two mana two for one or a two mana Kaya's Guile. I think it's really cool. Nice, nice work, Alex. Yeah, Alex, thank you for bringing this to our attention and congrats on the finish. It's great to see people that we know from the the Slack have good results and with something really sweet that you know he's put work into. And you know, I wish him luck as he continues to iterate from here. Alex streams every once in a while. I, I, I've seen him stream. Hopefully he streams this deck. People can learn from it. Yeah. Any thoughts on the overall metagame? That's a lot of Uro. And Uro is just making like every other card like look better even when it's not that great. You know what I mean? <laughs> Are you thinking about Gifts Ungiven right now when you say that? Yeah, I, I mean like not to say that Gifts is a bad card. Obviously it's a powerful card, but there's like a reason I think it didn't see a lot of modern play before this because it kind of tough to find synergies for it it's obviously four mana which is a lot um and 
just the fact that like if you're making blue or green mana I almost feel like there's just no downside to just add some Uros to your deck. We see that in the Urza deck that won the other challenge. We see it like all over the place in general. It's just, it's a lot of Uro. And I don't think Uro is such a crazy card. It's just like, it's it's ubiquitous. And I think that's kind of like an issue for people. I, I will say I'm getting worried. I just bought my third Uro. <laughs> and so. You bought an Uro? Cool. Yeah. You know, I have one for sale, right? When? My fourth arrow still there, dude. I thought you sold them all. I sold three. No, what, you forgot about Dre. <laughs> well, I was trying to support my local card store. I was thinking about buying a bunch of uh, double masters, and I was like, now I'm just gonna buy an arrow, buy a real card, guaranteed value. I mean, to answer your question that you asked, though, like I don't really know what to think about the metagame here. Like, I feel like it's kind of all over the place. These results are fairly scattershot. Like, we have you know. Buggles and Prowess and uh, Bant Field Uro decks and Mono Red Aggro decks and you know Titan and Wurza. I mean, we still see some Ponza and, and Adnaz and humans do well. So it's like you know the the theme that we're seeing is Uro showing up, of course. So I, I feel like maybe some concrete takeaways. If if you're playing modern right now in the queues, especially like have a plan against Uro dot deck like either something that can interact with with a bunch of islands something that can counterplay against counter spells graveyard hate of course is really good against uro like you need to know what to do if your opponent is or can cast that spell i also think you just need a plan against prowess like whether it's life gain whether it's a efficient way to deal with like a sea of one drops it feels like those two decks are kind of like the the killers right now and then the rest of the the format is just like metagaming against them. But having said that, it feels like you have a lot of ways to metagame against this environment. It, it it almost reminds me a little bit of like, you know, once upon a time playing Is It Phoenix, where that deck like took over, but it allowed a lot of other strategies to like have game. And I wonder if we're seeing a little bit of that now where like these these two decks are sort of defining the terms of engagement and forcing like a certain other caliber of deck to either rise up or a certain style of counterplay interaction or sideboard technology to be important right now. Wow. Unscripted thoughts. Very good take. I love it. I think that was well done. And I think with that, we should move on to the dive down. So stay with us as we dig deep into dredge. Wait, is that is that the graveyard deck? It is a graveyard deck. I want. I was trying to pick from a, a multiple different graveyard puns to to talk about to lead out of this segment. Oh yeah, I get it now. Dead again, dredge the dredgening, dredge two the dredgening. Anybody else have any they want to get out? Shallow graves, diving deeper into dredge, digging deeper, <laughs> digging deeper. I like it. Okay, this is the longest transition we've ever done. <laughs> Stay with us. Twenty minutes later, we're back. So the last time we did Dredge, it was episode eleven. Modern was very, very different, of course. Faithless Looting was in the deck. London Mulligan didn't even exist. I don't think War of the Spark had even come out yet. So this is like old modern. Yeah, definitely I don't think it had come out. And at the time we really leaned into Shane's expertise into Dredge because when we recorded that episode, he was in fact the only person who played the deck. 
Now all three of us have. That was one where we sort of like let him sit back and just shine. Oh man, I just I talk so much. I mean, it was great, but it was it was also like we hadn't quite gotten the habit where we were all tried to play the deck yet. So I don't I don't know if we all had mana traders accounts yet. Might be part of it. It was like a Phil Spector wall of sound. It was just my voice. You went with Phil Spector instead of Brian Wilson, huh? For the uh, for the uh, <laughs> yeah, the auteurs, man. the musical auteurs. Great. Okay. All right. That being said, even though Dave and I did play Dredge again, Shane never really stopped playing Dredge. You still are resident Dredgeman, and I'm still going to lean into your expertise and insights on like some of the topics as we try to dive a little bit deeper. You know, we don't necessarily want to rehash. You know what every card does, especially for a deck that's so popular and has been around for so long. I think a lot of people who are experienced with the modern metagame really know what it's about and like what some of the key pieces are and what are some of the most infamous pieces are in particular. But that being said, Shane, how has the last seven to eight episodes been for you since you know we, we last covered the strategy? Ah, <laughs> uh, man. I think I did go through some fits and starts. There was like a stretch when I was at the LGS, um, of course, pre pre end times. Um, and I was just, I just kept bringing dredge because my store is or, or was a very like fair store. And I was just like, look, I'm just going to keep playing this unfair deck. If you all are going to keep trying to play Jund against me. And, um, and that was, that was a lot of fun and also got me a lot of store credit because dredge, as we'll talk about is a deck that can capitalize on people being unprepared for it or playing decks that don't have good game against it and exists as the formats extremely stable and long time just base graveyard strategy. There have been other decks that have used the graveyard and continue to be other decks that use the graveyard, but dredge is kind of like the graveyard deck of modern that just won't die. (laughs) Um, But as you mentioned earlier, Stan, I do want to thank um, Bob P again, our most generous patron. Uh, He's also a died in the wool dredgeman and he wanted us to head back to the deep, deep, deep well uh, for his patron tier episode. Um, And as a reminder, you too can give us an episode topic to work with by joining at the highest patron tier. It's truly a generous amount, but if you want to support us in that way, we love working with people on these episodes because we've had some really interesting uh, deck dives. We have had really interesting strategic topics to cover, and it's definitely both a challenge and a pleasure to work with our uh, patrons in that way. Like you said, Stan, uh, since March of last year, when we did the episode, lots of things have changed for Dredge and the modern format altogether. Like the deck has lost one of its most important cards, right? Like Faithless Looting. When people, when that card was gone, people really thought, what's going to happen to Dredge? Like the, the deck cannot just exist without it. But then it just continues to gain some other cards that create new angles of attack, new enablers, and the deck just keeps ticking. So in this episode, I think we're going to look at the newest pieces of tech and dredge, help you wrap your head around like what dredge is trying to do, how you can play with and against the deck, and and perhaps most importantly, or at least more enjoyably, talk about our experiences playing the deck. So like also, like you said, Stan, I think if people really want the 
you know, maybe maybe nuts to nuts and bolts, the the head to tail, they can head back to episode eleven because we were really detailed in the episode, a lot about the history of dredge and you know car details and deck construction. And we're gonna highlight more about the changes since then and the new cards and the new tech and how that works to make the deck uh, even better in some ways while uh, perhaps worse in others. Can I just hop in one second, just add a little bit, slightly more context here, just in the sense of like, why is Dredge a relevant deck still right now other than, it's not hugely played, but I think there's a couple of reasons that you should listen if you're not someone who um, plays Dredge already. I'm someone who hasn't played it before. Okay, and so coming into it, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more from Shane again as he as he talks here because I did really badly with it. But a couple of things that I noticed playing the deck right now that I think people who haven't seriously considered the deck before should think about. There's three things. One is Shane talked about this a little bit. Uses the graveyard. Graveyard's really abusable in modern. This is something that does a good job of abusing the graveyard. That's great. It's powerful. Check check one. Check two is like this deck can kill early and so there's a little bit of an echo of like why would i play a storm in this same deck like why would i play dredge well because it kills really early in a way that is like shane alluded to it's not necessarily fair that's great too the last thing i wanted to say really quickly before we get too deep in here is that if you are someone who has a lot of the modern mana base already on hand this deck is very cheap to get in paper I'm looking at a sample deck list right now on you know MCG Goldfish, and the non-land cards in this deck, I think eyeballing it, cost about $90. And half of that cost is for Life from the Loam, which are about $10 a piece. So this is just a really competitive deck that you can push your collection into pretty easily if you're someone who has a good amount of mana already. Yeah. I think it's kind of like an amazing second deck. Like let's say let's say you get into modern with like with maybe burn, right? And you're going to have like maybe you're going to have some uh, red-based fetches, which is all you need. And then you pick up a few like copper line gorges or, you know, maybe the the singleton city of brass type land is maybe moderately expensive. But if you've got red fetches and a few shocks, then yeah, like you said, the rest of the deck is pretty darn cheap. So I didn't want to take you too far off, but I think that's a reasonable reason for people like pay attention to the information they're about to get because this is a good second deck. I love that sentence. Like it's a great deck to have in your stable. All right. What I want to start off first is like an extremely abbreviated history of dredge. And and most importantly, is just like what dredge is, because I said this in episode 11 and still is true. Like when I was first really playing modern seriously, I didn't really get dredge. Like I didn't really realize what was happening. I was just like, okay, things are happening and I don't know exactly why. And you know, it's, 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 you know, read the stinking card sometimes, but it's, it's kind of hard to always understand what that enables and what that allows you to do. So let's, let's read you know, dredge is from uh, Ravnica back in 2005 and so a card with dredge will read like dredge X and X will be maybe dredge five for a stinkweed imp. And what that means is that when that is in your graveyard, instead of any draw, any draw, any card that says like draw two or your draw step um, off a cathartic reunion or something like that, you would take the card that says dredge on it out of your graveyard into your hand and then instead mill, which is now an official 
Watsy uh, Magic the Gathering word, you will mill that number of cards off the top of your library into your graveyard. So why would you want to do that? That goal is to then mill cards that are advantageous to mill. So that could be more dredge cards to keep your dredge engine going, or creatures that can be recurred easily, or cards that can be flashbacked for more economical costs, or they do something cool when they get milled. So that's all you're trying to do essentially is, you know, the long story short is I want to dredge as much as possible in a game where I'm playing a dredge deck, because the more cards that get in your graveyard, the better off you probably are. Quick side note because we talked about this last week with the storm scale. Do you guys know where dredge is on the storm scale? It's extremely high, right? Like eight out of 10 or something. It is a 10. According to Mark Rosewater, dredge is a 10 out of 10 on the, on the storm scale. So do not expect new cards in standard legal sets to ever have dredge again. That's why it was amazing even to get shenanigans Mm -hmm. out of modern horizons, which is a dredge card. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. So the deck has had some ups and downs. Um, you know, it's gone through different types of bannings. Like, you know, when it first was on the scene, it was pretty rogue and weird. Then Golgari Grave Troll gets unbanned. It can be a lot more powerful. It gets cards like Insolent Neonate and Prized Amalgam and Shadows Over Innistrad. Gets just sort of better enablers and better payoffs. It gets an awesome card like Cathartic Reunion and Kaladesh because that lets you discard and draw, which is extremely amazing engine. Um, then cards like Golgari Grave Troll gets banned and Faithless Looting get banned, but then you get stuff like Creeping Chill. So like, we're going to get into a lot of the cards sort of post the post Faithless Looting ban era. Uh, we're going to go into more detail, but long story short, the, like I said earlier is the deck is always around and sometimes it's worse and sometimes it's better. And I will make the argument now and in more depth later that I think it is one of the better decks that you can be playing in the in the metagame right now in terms of being in, t- in tier one or two. Like, I think it's an amazing deck. I think it's a, has really high power level. And I think that there are some openings in the meta right now um, that allow it to succeed. Although the metagame in modern changes so much that by the time this episode makes it to print, that that argument may no longer be valid. <laughs> Great way to cover your traction. Yeah, no, you got you gotta you gotta make sure it's in this content creator environment. Pe- people people just are out to get you. They're like, no, Shane's wrong, which is likely true. The only card I would love to throw on this list that you didn't mention is Ox of Agonis. Don't forget, we'll come back to it. Oh, we're gonna talk about Ox. Good. Ox is so good. I mean, we're gonna so let's just let's just give you a little preview. So we have Merchant of the Veil, vale. we have Forgotten Cave, we have Shenanigans, we have Ox of Agonis, we have Silver Smote Ghoul, uh, which is making people rethink about the way the entire deck is built, or at least the the fundamentals of what go what should go into Dredge and how the, the game will be played. Smiting Helix. Smiting Helix, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a card. And we'll talk about why that synergizes well with Silver Smote Ghoul. Because they have Smite and Smote in the name? What, why is Dredge so powerful? I have my thoughts. <sighs> Is it? <laughs> well, why is Dredge Mechanic powerful? I'll, I'll tell you why. Because it cheats on card advantage and mana costs is, is the short answer, right? So it breaks some rules. It breaks the rules of drawing one card per turn. It breaks the rules of using the mana or lands you have available to you to cast, you know, cards equal to that CMC. Yeah. And so, I mean, like by getting free cards out of the graveyard, like a three CMC prized amalgam or, you know, or a... Three CMC 
silver smoke ghoul mm-hmm. or like, like casting back an ox of Agonis without casting it for the first time, all that kind of stuff. It, it even like lets you cheat on the number of cards you can have in your hand essentially, because like your entire graveyard is quote unquote, like your hand. So you're not even limited to, to seven cards. You can have uh 53, you can have 60 if you're, if you're really crazy. Yeah. I mean, the deck even has fireball, like, yeah. Graveyard Fireball and Conflagrate, which I think people, they, they don't forget about it, but it's one of those cards that's like, it has a direct damage angle of attack that I think um, is really important too. It, it kind of plays a classic burn type game in that it wants to get chip damage in with creatures. And if it needs to, it can finish off the game with easy reach through Creeping Chill or Conflagrate. And again, we'll talk about kind of these goals later i think what i want to summarize in terms of what dredge is trying to do or what it is doing and it's basically a combo aggro deck and i can kind of compare that to maybe tron being like a combo control deck in terms of the way you want to have cards in your opening hand that allow you to quickly enable your strategy and the strategy with dredge is get cards in your graveyard that are better there than in your hand and hopefully some cards that have dredge printed on them and so you're doing things early with your enablers like Shriekhorn or the Haggle spell side of Merchant of the Veil or your Cathartic Reunion on turn two. And then once you have your dredge engine going, you're replacing your draws with those dredges and then milling over cards that you want there. And let's talk about then what you're actually wanting to mill over. And I kind of mentioned this earlier, which is cards that then have a way to get back onto the battlefield or do something. And so you want to get your creatures back. Like if you're playing the Bloodgast version, a landfall trigger gets Bloodgast back. Narcamoeba returns just for getting in your being milled into the graveyard at all. Silver Smoke Ghoul, if you gain three life. Prized Amalgam comes along for the ride whenever it sees any other creature. ETB from the graveyard, so that could be Bloodgast, or Silver Smoke Ghoul, or Narcomoeba, or Oxivagonus. And then while you're doing that, like Creeping Chill is doing like these free lightning helixes that are uncounterable. So just out of nowhere, you mill over a Creeping Chill and you get a lightning helix for completely free. And then like Dave mentioned earlier, then you usually have one or two Conflagrates, which go in your graveyard and do two things. Like one, it's Reach. But two, it also allows you to cast your reach while also fueling your graveyard because you're throwing away the cards that you have dredged into your hand. So let's say you have, over the course of a game, you've picked up like three different dredgers. You now have like five cards in your hand, and then you can cast your conflagrate back out of the graveyard for five damage, clear a few blockers, or go straight to the dome. Then in that, discarding those three dredgers that were in your hand, then fueling future dredges if you need to. So it's just like this amazingly synergistic piece of tech and a perfect card for the strategy. It's one of my favorites, honestly. They don't call it conflict grid. <laughs> uh, I will now. Um, yeah, I, I got to say, 
one of the things that I loved most about playing this deck was setting up my big conflagrate turns and like finding ways to either use life of the loam to set up my conflagrates or just like being a little bit patient and like finding ways to like just fill up my hands slowly so that I can like have that big turn where I just kind of blow out my opponent out of nowhere. Yeah, like the the loam engine to fill the hand up for like the big huge damage conflagrate is really satisfying. Can I talk a little bit about how this deck is built? As long as we're talking about these great burn cards yeah you got it. i mean we've kind of we've kind of like talked about all these things in the name but not really exactly kind of like what they're in there for yeah so when i was playing this deck i eventually found that what felt to me were three categories of cards in this deck and like category one which surprisingly is the smallest one are the dredge cards and the list i played and i think this is about average is only running about 10 cards that have the word dredge on it yeah, um, formerly it was maybe about 10 to 12, and that was in the pre-Ox era. And what Ox does, and we'll talk about everything Ox does, because I think it is an insane, like truly insane card in Dredge. Ox reduces the need for like 12 Dredgers, because even if your Dredge chains break, then when you escape the Ox in the mid to late game, you then pitch the Dredgers you've been picking up and can start again. And so it it's something that lets you restart your whole system and your whole engine and just turning the key back again and getting things going. So you can reduce like a singleton Golgari thug. You can eliminate Dark Blast from your deck because one, the meta doesn't really call for it. It's not like it's like a noble hierarch meta right now. Um, and then you can make room for a couple oxen. Yeah. Those 10 dredge cards, it's just three, right? It's just Life of the Loam, Golgari Thug, and Stinkweed Imp. Stinkweed Imp, typically, yes. And the fun thing for me, just from like playing this deck for the last week or so, was like I have immediately, it, it, it was not hard to memorize like what the dredge counts were on each of them. It's just five, four, three. And like it was really quick. It was I was really quick to pick up that like Stinkweed Imp is just the best dredge card in this deck. And then Life of the Loam is potentially like the the second best card just because it has all these other synergies and little combo enablers that it can do with other pieces which we'll get to yeah what's crazy about stinkweed imp is you would play it as just like kind of a flying creature if even if it's said dredge five but it's so annoyingly good when like on your side because it has like as pseudo death touch that has sort of pre-death touch so it's an amazing blocker that they don't want to kill because like then it's in your graveyard and then, and so even if it didn't have death touch, they wouldn't really want to swing into it because then if you don't have much of a dredge engine going, then you automatically have, you immediately have rather this dredge five that on your draw step, you can start dredging and getting things going. Yeah. It's, it's next to conflagrate. It's basically your removal spell. And there was like a couple matches where I played against Eldrazi Tron and they would cast a thought not seer against me and, you know, kind of a hard card to kill, but you just like get a stinkweed imp back and now you have like a killer blocker that also then once you kill a thought not seer specifically you get some dredge stuff going but really really loved it your next category of cards also around 10 of these are your graveyard enablers so here i'm referring to cathartic reunion shriekhorn and haggle one of the new additions since we last talked about this deck and then finally the biggest category of all around 20 cards are your payoffs. This is Prize the Malcolm, Silver Smoke Ghoul, Creeping Chill, Ox of Agonis, Conflagrate. You know, these are literally the cards that do the work that get your opponent to zero life. 
they're your win conditions and the kind of the payoff for the engine that you create as you play this deck. And I think some of these cards exist in like a little bit of a Venn diagram of functionality for the deck because like Creeping Chill is both a payoff for your dredge engine, but then it also enables your Silver Smoke Ghouls. You know, Ox of Agonis is a payoff for having like a big yard full of uh, random lands or cathartic reunions you've cast or, or Shriek Horns that you've milled over. But then you also use it to draw a bunch of cards to generate some dredge triggers, put a body on the board. And again, it sets up both like this condition where it is both the payoff and an enabler for what the deck is trying to do. There, there, There's been a lot of sort of talk, I think, by the people who've been in the game for a while about like how how elegantly a deck like Green Tron is designed. Like what sort of like what smart design this deck is. And I have to put a deck like Dredge up there with it. Like none of this is is, you know, galaxy brain to really put these cards together and figure out. But the way the different cards enable each other and work together and allow for intelligent and clever sequencing and different ways to have the cards trigger off each other and think about setting up one turn into the next, I think really is this very clever deck, even if it does feel like it's on autopilot and when you play it sometimes. Yeah. Especially online, the deck kind of plays itself. <laughs> yes. It, it, it can feel like, I think like, I mean, I think like about 80% of the deck is playing itself. It's like sort of like if I'm all to an engine, I am all to an engine start. I see what happens and sometimes it, it works well, and sometimes it works a little bit less well. And that's where the 20% comes. I'm, I'm going to have to pick your brain about that later, because I must have played myself badly, because it didn't go great for me my first foray with, with Dredge. But Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be great to talk about our experiences, because I think that's going to mirror some of our listeners, too. Like, if they start picking the deck up and play it for the first time, instead of, like, the 31st time or 91st time. Yeah. Before we get there, why don't we talk a little bit about the most recent evolution of the deck, which is one sacred cow has been dredged away and uh, been replaced with a new toy. And it is definitely a sacred cow. Um, I was I was rereading conversation when when this when this came out and there are people who are very opposed to the idea. But what what is the idea that I'm that I'm hinting at, Dave? Well, the idea is that Bloodgast, which is a well-known recurring graveyard synergistic card that has done plenty of work in modern over the years, which is a 2-1 that comes back from the graveyard when you play a land. It has a landfall trigger. It's from Zendikar originally. Versus Silver Smote Ghoul, which is a totally innocuous looking uncommon from m21 that reads at the beginning of your end step if you gained three or more life this turn return silver smoke ghoul from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped so it is essentially a bit of a prized amalgam style trigger instead of a blood gas style trigger that mostly triggers off of creeping chill yes and it seems to become the de facto version of the deck people are playing these days, at any rate, any of the masters that you see playing Dredge right now are building these Silver Smoke Ghoul versions. So let's let's talk about the difference here and, and what happened to cause that shift. Maybe we can do a little bit of a, a pro and con list. Yeah. As, as we dissect the differences between these two cards. I have a lot of pros. <laughs> For which one? There's a few cons. 
I think they both have pros and cons. So Blood Gas, the reason it was a sacred cow is because it gave you on-demand prize the Malcolm triggers. Like it made all of your top deck lands stronger. It made the last like 10 points of damage that, you know, you kind of need to close out the game a lot more consistent because it, it becomes a hasty threat later in the game. Yeah, very underrated text on Bloodgast. I found when I was playing with Hogak that that comes in pretty handy quite often. Yeah, I think that there is a lot, there's a lot of good reasons that I think players were hesitant to want to replace Bloodgast. But I do think that there are quite a few pros to Silver Smoke Ghoul over Bloodgast. And I think some of them are a little bit sneaky. Like you don't think about them until you actually experience them or like really think about the what's going to happen when you're playing. And like one of the fundamentals is that Ghoul just has three power and three is more than two. And in a deck where you're just trying to frequently to race or get the opponent dead as fast as possible, that's a substantial difference. I heard somewhere that that's 50% more than two. <laughs> 50% more. 50% more than two. Is that right? Check out our math episode. I, Shane, I hope I'm not pulling the rug from under you, but one other reason why I think that extra point of power is relevant is that Ghoul can trade. Yes. In a way that Bloodgast cannot. Bloodgast literally can't even block. You know, at least with, with Ghoul, you can hold it back and it will it will trade with like a pretty powerful creature in some cases. Well, what's also really good about the blocking... So blocking is a point I had later on my pro list because it can do a couple things. Like it can buy you time to set up your future turns where you're trying to get the board back with some dredges or you just need to finish off the opponent in like a board stall environment where you're trying to dredge into some creeping chills or get a conflagrate online to finish off the game with that burn. So just being able to to block and potentially even recur that blocker again is valuable. And there's even weird cases where you can like block a lifelink creature, like let's say a, a big old worm coil engine and you can block it and then you can use the instant speed activated ability to sacrifice silver smoke ghoul. And then that negates the life gain. And if you have a dredger in the yard allows you to dredge again. So that's really valuable in a in a deck that's just trying to make the opponent not gain life and in fact lose life. <laughs> so what's what's interesting is like the the argument that you might hear or that one might make is that there's it's easier to make a land drop than it is to gain 3 life in this deck. Like you have to have a creeping chill. But what this really means is that you can have it hit the board earlier when you're dredging on turn 2. You can have Silver Smote Ghoul hit the, the yes. earlier, yes. just to be clear. So that, because this, this is still in the pro pro for Ghoul, so Ghoul Pro list. Because because you're constrained on the land drops you can make early in the game, and yes. Dredge's advantage really comes in when it gets creatures out very early. Yeah. like So even if you dredge a Blood Gas into the yard with like a, let's say you have like a turn two Cathartic Reunion and you dredge 15. Like you just have you have the nuts and and you have you get three blood gas in the yard. You can't get those blood gas back until turn three. And they likely won't have haste at that point, which also means your prized amalgams aren't on the board until turn three, unless you had like some narcomoebas in there, right? So like you're you're like you're likely getting more power on the board swinging on turn three with ghoul because it can just be more explosive in that fashion than waiting for your turn three land drop. I also think ghoul is easier to hard cast 
with a dex mana. Like you don't have to have black black, which can be painful to fetch for because you're almost always fetching a red green earlier and then maybe a red black land. You also quite frequently will mill one of your two red black sources. Yes. So like, you know, you have to wait to get it back with life from the loan them and it's a whole thing. So (laughs) it's a real commitment. Yeah. And then Ghoul, like I said earlier, has that instant speed onboard draw ability that can assist in grinding a little bit. It's basically a flashback faithless looting. So it's good. Yeah. I, I found as bad as I was at playing this deck that that trick of either blocking and then doing the onboard draw or chump attacking in having them force a block and not caring if I trade for their creature to do another draw to like sacrifice it on the, you know, when they block was super useful for sure. But there are some cons and Stan, you may have more than these because I think like you're, you're a little bit less positive about the ghoul than I am. I think that. No, I, I, I love ghoul. Okay. You love ghoul. I love ghoul. Yeah, no, I love ghoul. I also love ghoul. I think that it can potentially get tripped up a little easier in the, the, like your dredging system because it can be a little bit more challenging to get back out of the graveyard it requires that creeping chill hit. But I think that's attempted to be alleviated with smiting helix flashbacks uh, in this deck. Fetch lands do allow you to get around like one shot graveyard hate with blood ghasts. So like you, with because of the way the landfall triggers can stack, you're always going to get your blood gas back because like if they try to pop a relic in response to the initial landfall trigger, you can then uh, pop your fetch land and get the blood gas back. So that can be a little bit better. It doesn't have haste. Silver smoke ghoul. And it enters the battlefield tapped, which I don't think matters that much because most dredge games aren't really one in my opinion because you had some uh haste blood gas they're one because like you dodged hate or you won the race and this i think ghoul allows you to win the race more frequently it gets power on the board more quickly i mean peeling back the curtain a little bit i feel like when we started talking about the recent iteration of dredge a couple of weeks ago you were kind of like I don't even know if Silver Smote is that good. And now you've put in a bunch of reps. You sound pretty decisive that you're on the the uh, vampire zombie, which I guess equals a ghoul side. Yeah, like when you untap with like 15 power on turn three or even like 12, even nine power, it's like just like this is really good. Like I'm I'm having way better turn threes in in isolation than I normally do. I, I kind of feel like the the line of text that really gives Ghoul the edge, despite everything you said, is just the fact that it draws cards, which for a graveyard synergy deck, like that is actually the most important thing that you can do. Yeah, it dredges cards, yeah. Exactly. And, and that being said, I, I wonder if the reason why you had thought maybe I was a little colder on Ghoul is just that like I'm willing to uh, at least concede that like in a different metagame under different conditions, like there may be a reason for Dredge to go back to Bloodgast. Like, you know, you're more of a Dredgeman than I am, but I wouldn't be surprised to find that this is a flexible slot. Here's why I would say no. Creeping Chill is a staple in the deck, and this card synergizes with Creeping Chill. And that's just kind of all it is. Even if you come down to the idea of, I can get my ghoul out, get it chump blocked, sacrifice it to dredge five, hit a creeping chill and get my ghoul back immediately. That's like a huge play that is not constrained by the number of land drops that you can make on a given turn. 
So I think that as long as Creeping Chill is not outmoded in the deck, which in my mind is seems impossible, but they print powerful cards all the time. So who knows? But as long as Creeping Chill is a pillar of this deck, it just feels like Ghoul is the perfect companion to it. Blood Gas is a powerful card, but maybe its time is just kind of over for now. Yeah, that's that's the one that's just gotten outmoded, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Unless you have more to this love letter, I'd love to talk real quick just about the lands and mana because I, I was surprised a little bit by some of the the resources that were involved here. The deck only runs like 19 or 20 lands. Like I was I was kind of amazed by how land light it was. But you can't really keep one landers. Like you, you essentially, when you're making your mulligans, you need at least two. This is something I really wanted to talk to the two of you about because I did so poorly with this deck. And I think that <laughs> almost all of the times that I did poorly with this deck was because my hand was a bunch of payoffs, a dredger and haggle or streakhorn and one land. Yeah, you have to have two lands. And so I'd be like, okay, I guess I will play my turn one, powerful turn one card. I'll throw Stinkweed Imp in the graveyard with Haggle, and then I'll dredge over and over again. It's just like, you never draw your second land. You never draw it. I just died so many games because I never drew it. Yeah, the math is very bad. You know, I think we'll talk a little bit about like kind of mulligan rules later, but yeah, I think Dave mentions a very important thing, which is because the, the deck is land light, you have to have an opener that makes sense and gives you the mana that you need early on, at least enough mana to cast Life from the Loam. Yeah, yeah, that's the main thing, right? Is that you have to you have to cast Cathartic Reunion or Life from the Loam. But the thing is, like, this deck is land light, but it's not really that land light in the context of modern. Like, no. you know, it's not like a sixteen lander or something. I mean, Shadow runs eighteen, nineteen lands. Blue Red Prowess, I think, runs seventeen, eighteen, nineteen lands. So it's like they run. There are plenty of other decks that run in the same range, but yeah. what? Some of those decks have that this deck does not have are cantrips. Right. So. Well, I, I think although this deck is land light, it never misses land drops at a certain point just because of Life of the Loam. And I think that that's pretty important. As long as you start with two, which I didn't yeah. learn until yeah. now. One thing that I didn't fully appreciate, even though like Shane, everyone told me this, and now I finally understand why. This deck really is weak to Blood Moon. Just like kind of, in part because of how important Life of the Loam is to this deck, but also like it's got one or two basics and they're mountains and everything else, everything else is a non-basic. So when my opponent cast a Blood Moon against me, I don't think I was able to win that game. Well, I think there are times when Blood Moon really does get you, but there's a lot of times when like you're already set up on turn three, mm-hmm. right? And like this this deck has run magus of the moon in the sideboard against like titan heavy metas right because it's so bad against titan and you have to have some pieces to win so as long as you can eventually cast something like magus of the moon after you have your engine going and you can dredge from your graveyard and you you don't really care if you're casting life from the loam then that's something that is viable tech but like let's say it was like a, a, a simian spirit guided out like turn two blood moon before you're able to cast your t- turn two cathartic reunion then yeah that's that can be bad news although you're casting cathartic reunion so nbd but like if you're really relying on life from the loam as like your sort of engine card that's going to get you to the grinded out wind then yeah that can really stymie you yeah so do you sideboard in blood moon against this deck then 
I think you can, but as always, maybe it's like a piece of your kit against it. I would not rely on winning with Blood Moon. Yeah. I, I think like Graveyard Hate is still the best. Blood Moon is just quite good. But remember, Dave, you need a threat to back up your... <laughs> you have to have disruption yeah. and threats. Rule number one. Yep. So I think we should talk about the other changes to the deck in 2020 besides uh, the ghoul. And I personally think that these additions that brought the power level back up into like the really good territory, like we didn't have any of these cards in episode 11. So I think we can get a little bit uh, deeper in there. Uh, and along with the cards, we also have some, some subtractions as well. I'd also think that we should start with one specific thing. And that is the London Mulligan. Yeah, for sure. Like that seems like that's the most important thing to note about this deck because you need to mulligan so often with this. What do you think, Shane? Well, I agree. I have some mulligan thoughts, but I want to give Stan an opening here. Fun fact, episode 11, we did a wind down and the wind down was, so what do you guys think about this new London mulligan rule that they just proposed? <laughs> oh man. Well, it's the people are still arguing about it um, a year and a half later, if it's been good or bad for the game. But I think for decks like Dredge, decks like Tron, which I can associate pretty similarly with this type of deck is you have to have a good starting hand and mm -hmm. the London Mulligan allows you to get the pieces that you need far more reliably, even though you've lost one of your most important pieces in faithless looting that you want in your opener. Uh, you just get more looks at good hands. And I still got so many bad hands and so many moles to four. I can't believe that I ever played this deck before the London Mullen succeeded with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the beauty of this deck, the way it cheats on resources and cards is that with the London Mulligan, you can sculpt a five-card hand that is still insanely broken. With just like two lands, two dredge cards, and a cathartic reunion, you may not have any action on turn one, but on turn two, you're you're going off. Yeah, how many times did you guys keep a cathartic reunion hand and just were like, please, no thoughtsies, please, no thoughtsies, please, no thoughtsies? Yeah. That's all I thought about. True. <laughs> I do think that's a really important thing that does give the deck some additional power level because this is a deck that wants four to five cards that are perfect and you know there's redundancy there but you really need to get them and like the fact that you can mull to them while still seeing seven cards every time is huge. It almost reminds me of Tron where like you almost have to risk losing yeah. just for the sake of getting an opening hand with a specific type of action. Yeah, I would like I would take like a a pseudo loss via mulliganing to like three than I would where I'm playing a game where I don't do anything and then lose anyway. Speaking of Tron versus versus Dredge, I lost a game where I kept a seven and Tron kept a three. <laughs> Man, Dave. My dude. Breaks my heart. Yeah, I mean the mulligan rule <clears throat> I would say is like you just you have to have two lands. One of them that has to be a green source, okay, to be able to cast Life from the Loam. You have to have an enabler and a dredger. So that can be like Mountain, Stomping Ground, uh, Cathartic Reunion, and Stinkweed Imp. You know, it has to have something like that. Maybe maybe a Haggle and a Golgari Thug or something like that. So, you know, obviously there are better starting hands and more reliable starting hands, but you have to have at least that. And frequently, I would I would keep anything that has that even if I think like, okay, that's my opening seven and I've got 
four lands and a cathartic reunion and a dredger, I'm just going to keep it because like, I'm just going to rely on that working. So we, we figured out how to mulligan easy. Yeah. So easy. We lost faith of sluting, which I think I don't want to understate how impactful that is on the deck. Like we, we can kind of dance around the subject that yes, this deck is still good. And in some cases it's got like certain pieces that have upgraded it, but I think it's only upgraded it relative to the loss of faithless looting. Um, if, if faithless looting was the legal, the deck would probably still run four of them. Oh yeah. No question. And I think one of the most practical impacts of that ban is just your turn one is a lot weaker and a lot less consistent. And I think right now in 2020, your best card for turn one is just Shriekhorn. Haggle is good, but it's like, it's no faithless looting. And frankly, in my personal opinion, I don't think it's even as good as Shriekhorn. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Um, you know, you just aren't keeping hands without dredgers right at all, right? That's so like, so my, my preference would to get a guaranteed dredger in the yard and start that dredge engine with a turn one haggle. You know, if you happen to have a Shriekhorn and a merchant and a dredger in your opener, you can then do like a turn one Shriekhorn. You mill two at your opponent's second main, you untap mill yourself two more. If you don't hit a dredger by then, then you cast your haggle in your upkeep mm-hmm. before your draw step to then ensure that you're going to have a dredger in there to work with. That's kind of like a little little sequencing maximization in my eyes. Um, so yeah, I think that I would rather have a, a haggle into dredger than rely on the Shriekhorn. But yeah, like if you have both, then you are likely doing pretty well in your opener. Yeah, I mean, you're never unhappy to get Merchant of the Veil, but the deck doesn't run four. It doesn't run four, I think, primarily because that's a good question. I mean, that's a good reason, Stan. I think here's a couple of reasons for that. Why it doesn't run four is I think one, it's not that great. And two, uh, Shriekhorn mills more cards. So like Merchant has to have a dredger along with it, right? Shriekhorn lets you see more cards. So like there are certain times when Shriekhorn is better at just letting you mill more and then hopefully dredge more. But Merchant is like synergistic with the rest of the deck so, but you're probably right then. Like if, if it really wanted Merchant on turn one, it would just play more of them. I think there's two things. One is you only have so many spots for turn one enablers of dredge, right? And it's not eight spots. You have six spots for it because you want to run Ox of Agonis. And so what you're doing is choosing, do I want to run four Shriekhorns or do I want to run four Haggles? And people decided to run Shriekhorn instead thoughts also dredgers have been reduced in the deck too like stan said you only have like 10 dredge cards now so the the math on always having like a merchant and a dredger is not super high uh, any longer and you're sort of relying on the ox engine mid-game rather than having 12 dredgers so there's some math computation one can do there too yeah. well so so shane i have a question for you based on what dave just said prior to the fluting ban did you not run force recorn no, I was ran four Shriekhorn. So, so Dave, to your point, like once upon a time, we could run eight turn one dredgers just because Faithless Hooting was good on turn one or on turn five. Exactly. And what's happening now, I think, is that Ox is taking up some of that good on turn five yes. space. Right. Where Shriekhorn and Haggle are both not good on turn five. So what you had to do and split is split that off into a different direction. 
I don't think it's it, way more powerful. Stands like haggles fine on turn five. Yeah, of course, because by turn five, you have a dredge card in your hand. Like if, if you have a haggle in hand, you know, to like to dredge something back and it's going to enable a dredge three, four or five. Yeah, but Ox dredges 15 on turn five. Also, gentlemen, you're you're, com- you're completely ignoring the fact that there's almost no way that you're going to have a haggle in hand on turn five because you're not taking natural draws. Oh, uh, yeah, you're not drawing. So like it's not a card you draw into, mm. I mean, unless unless you're like really whiffing and like drawing off the top of your deck, and at that point you're not very happy anyway. Great. Yes. The only other thing I was going to say is number one rule of this deck is set a stop in your own upkeep. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. My favorite part about playing and this. at your opponent's second main. That's interesting. Why their second main? Okay, the second main is because. If you activate a, if you cast a haggle or activate a shriekhorn at the end of their second main, it happens before their end step, and then your end step triggers trigger. So, like, if you let's if you get the magical mill of like Narcomeba Prized Amalgam, then it untaps you untap with them on your turn. Great. Uh, if you if it happened, let's say you forgot to set that stop and you did it at their end step, um, it happens at the beginning of the end step, and then you're you wouldn't get the prized amalgams back until your end step. Yeah, this is a great point. All right, yeah. fix your stops if you're going to play dredge. And, and if you're going to cast a haggle, wait till you're the end of your opponent's second main. Don't reveal anything to them. Reveal nothing. <laughs> so you're just gonna you're gonna put that fetchland out there, and you're gonna you're gonna you know you're gonna let them go through their turn, end of their second main, crack it, cast the haggle. Hopefully, get some good stuff and start start attacking. Yeah. All right. So look, we've danced around it a little bit. Can we talk about Oxivagonus now? Sure, sure. So Let's good. keep yelling at each other, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Things I like about Ox. Let me let me things ten things I like about Ox. <laughs> it's it's a threat, it's an enabler, and it's a payoff. All in the same card. Card's amazing. Yeah. It lets you discard dredgers, lets you draw cards and or dredge cards, dredge those same cards you just discarded. It blocks well and it attacks well. Mm-hmm. It's it's everything. For this deck, without Ox, I don't think this deck is good anymore. I think it's, like, adequate. Like, Ox is better than a flashback Faithless Looting. And it also hits, like, a truck. Like, it's it's just so good in the mid-game. Like, so I'm going to compare it to Faithless Looting and why I think it's better. Okay? Yeah. So, like, when you... if Not better than Faithless Looting. Yeah, better than Faithless Looting flashback. Okay. Okay, yes, yeah. yes. So, like, when you flashback to Looting, you would typically have like dredged up a stinkweed emperor two already right like by that turn and then you'd have life from the loams which is your worst dredger in the graveyard so when you cast looting you would like dredge up two life from the loams and then you discard those two imps that you had in your hand to set up future dredges and following turns okay so you dredged six off of your two loams okay with ox you instead are immediately discarding the imps in your hand and then you're dredging like 14 or 15 and then in your following turn you can dredge for your like on your draw step and then cast something like a second ox that you've milled over for like another dredge 15 and so the number of cards that you dredge is just incredibly more and that's really all that matters at that point in the game because you're just taking over yeah, it's interesting. It's almost more like a cathartic reunion with flashback than it is, you know what I mean? Because it has the discard part mm-hmm. first, which is mm-hmm. really cool. That's a good point. Um, 
The other thing I would say is that it's funny because I think because of Ox, I almost milled myself playing this deck. Like three yep. of the matches I played, I came yep. so close to milling myself. I'm like turn four. Oh, it happens. <laughs> I have done that more than I care to admit. We were like, well, I guess I'm dead because I just ran myself out of cards by accident. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. That happened to me as well. Um, so I totally agree. Everything you're saying, Ox is insane. I, I loved casting Ox. I love that it's not a Titan. So like there was one or two games where I just hard cast it thinking it was going to go to my graveyard immediately, but it, it stuck, it stuck around. So that was cool. I do wonder though, like I felt like I had to be a little bit precious with my Ox of Agonis because the thing I never want to do is um, like delve cards with dredge to the Ox right like don't i need to like wait until my graveyard is full of like excess lands or cathartic reunions uh merchant of the veils or shriek horns to cast ox because having those like dredgers in the yard is so important or are you able to just say like if i have dredgers in hand it doesn't matter yeah i mean i would say the sequence is is you hope that you don't have a bunch of like prized amalgams and silver smoke ghouls hanging out in there and you'd prefer to not uh exile those away so you can just sort of maybe take another turn and hopefully dredge up like another life from the loam or a stinkweed imp to then mill over a few more cards and set yourself up without getting rid of the important cards. I, I will say, I don't think it's too bad if you have to dr- like get rid of one dredge card. Yeah. it's. I would be more worried about getting rid of a dredge or less about getting rid of a dredge card than I would get r- getting rid of a prized amalgam. For example, I definitely don't want to do ox if I'm going to get rid of a prized amalgam because I have to. But if I have to get rid of like a Golgari thug, it's probably okay because I have at least a couple of others around. Yeah, I mean, you're you're probably pitching them, you know, from your hand at that point. Last point about Ox for me. You know, we, we mentioned it as one of the cards that replaces Faithless Looting. We talked about that it's better than the flashback on Faithless Looting. And as a result, with losing Faithless Looting, our turn ones get a little weaker. Did the banning of Faithless Looting and the printing of Ox make this deck more mid-rangey? and less aggressive. I don't think so. Um, I think that this deck is more aggressive than ever uh, because especially when replacing it, replacing Bloodgast with Ghoul, I think Bloodgast is a grindier card because it keeps coming back and then it has haste. And so like you can sort of just keep attacking your way through and getting some damage through. But the explosiveness of hopefully early turn ghouls off of like your turn two reunion and then getting an ox on even like turn three or something like that is just bonkers. And you just want to get that damage. in, I think more quickly and more effectively without having to like sort of grind your way through the long game. But it also does that well as, as, as well. Like I definitely won long games yeah, because like of a life from the loam engine or an, into like a late game ox or something like that, where it's like, you know, I, I won games where I had to keep like a sketchy four and like my only thing that was going on were like really bad life from the loam dredges where I wasn't hitting anything. And then finally I got something going and then was able to cast an ox and just take over the board with like 15 damage on the next turn. Hmm. Man, ox of Gonus, what a card. We talked about how cheap dredges, ox of Gonus, $2.50 for a mythic. <sighs> I, I really wanted ox to be good in a fair deck like a value-y kind of more like mardu pyromancer style deck but it is just not for that it is it is for this so all right there were a few 
few other cards that have been added to the metagame since we lasted this episode. They're not as fun to talk about, but we'll mention them really quick. Smiting Helix, only seeing play because of Silver Smoke Ghoul, and I believe it's more often than not just a one of. Yeah. This is like the Lightning Helix with Flashback, basically. I think it's nice right now in particular just because there's so much prowess around, so like gaining three life is is helpful too. Like every once in a while, you you know, you don't find your Creeping Chills or they exile them. So having like another way to gain life is not irrelevant beyond the fact that it triggers your Silver Smote's Blast Zone. I've been seeing this come up a lot. Very handy. In, in sideboards in particular. I loved bringing in Blast Zone, especially against Prowess. And you know whether or not you draw it, you're going to get it because of Life of the Loam. Like you're kind of happy to mill it because then you have a nice target for your Life of the Loams. Yeah, it can be valuable to clear off things like Grafdigger's Cage or Relic of Progenitus or like Rest in Peace. Uh, it's just, it's it's very handy. It's a good card to have access to. And like you said, it's like with the Life in the Loam engine, you get some additional ways of recurring it. So it's not something you have to have in your opener necessarily. Yeah. Not to mention like the occasional uh, Death Shadow or a Tarmogoyf or a Scooze even. Yeah. The version I played had Deafening Silence. Yeah, it's in the sideboard sometimes. I think it's like fine. It's 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 pro- it's probably decent against prowess. It's decent against like weird multiple spell a turn combo decks like storm or perhaps some other things that I'm not thinking of like you know the uh, Wurza style decks. I think no, th- do those don't win on the stack, right? That's just sort of a sacrifice triggered ability. Correct. Yeah, it can it can slow down prowess. Yeah, I think I'd rather see like leyline. Um, I, I played two uh, Leyline of Sanctity in my board, which is super awesome against Prowess, not only for the, the burn, but also for the Tormod's Crypt, which is something that is frequently seen in those decks. Yeah. The card I was a little surprised to be absent from basically every sideboard that I looked at was Wilt, in that not only does it get like a lot of the most important hate pieces that people bring in against uh, Dredge in that it destroys artifacts and enchantments it also has cycling so like every once in a while you can just cycle it to trigger a dredge shane why do you think it might uh not run that card cost two baby cost two and you need to kill a leyland out of the void on turn one mm. like to set up your cathartic reunions turn two the temple it's just too much of a tempo loss i think i'll allow it i think one last card stan is uh forgotten cave uh, we mentioned it, and it is—it's the red onslaught cycling land, and Modern Horizons got it, and so it was added to all those lands. Will add it to Modern, and what—it's just a nice combo. It's like it's—it can sit in your graveyard, it can be loamed back, and then cycled to trigger just an, an easy dredge. You can get loam back if you want, it, so you get like this sort of late game loop, and that can really set up a grindier win. It's slow, it's slow, but it's grindy. I loved the combo between Forgotten Cave and Life of the Loam. It reminded me of playing Mystic Sanctuary again. Just like, <laughs> here's this nice little land-based engine that like, if I can do this for two or three turns in a row, I'm probably going to set up my win. All right, so those are the new cards. You know who else got new cards? Our Dredge opponents. No. Yeah, believe it. I'd, I'd love to touch on like some of the new hate cards that we got since the last episode. Some of them incredibly popular, others a little bit more fringy, others main deck staples. And I'm curious, Shane, Resident Dredgeman, Dave, having played this deck a little bit, how did you guys feel when people brought in Ashiok Dream Renderin against you? Sometimes it sucks. 
like to, to face down, sometimes I think it sucks them to cast because I think it can be like a really expensive, like Tormod script that you just kill. And sometimes it can, it can, if you're behind, it can keep you behind, which can be frustrating, you know, cause it has that just repeatable graveyard exile ability, which can just really be frustrating. Um, and it caught, but it costs three mana. So it's like, it's not something that's going to be seen before, uh, the end of, you know, your turn two or their turn three. And perhaps, you know, after that, I think, I think it's like a prime, like thought seize target. If you're, if you're going to play against, uh, any deck that can cast it, you probably want to have some thought seizes to, to target it, uh, and get it out of their hand. You can also play pithy needle and name it, which is, uh, something that I would suggest doing before, <laughs> before it gets you sideboarding with dredge is one of those problems where there's some cards you have to have in your opener. And you can't get them back out of the graveyard. Thoughtsies and Pithy Needle are two of those, but they're so versatile and valuable that there are sometimes cards you have to run for things like Ashiok. All right. How about Clothis? It's slow. It's kind of like Relic in that way that just like it picks off one card out of the graveyard per turn, but obviously super powerful because she can appear on the board as early as turn two, even on game one. And like one of the things that makes Dredge such a powerful option in the metagame is that you can surprise people that don't have game one graveyard hate not so if you're playing against uh, ponza yeah i mean i'm not i'm not loving seeing clothis like i did face down a an opponent that sort of had everything like they got like they got a scavenging goose they got a clothis down i think they had like a single piece of graveyard hate i was like you did it you know you got your sideboard right. cards and they all <laughs> sucked in different ways yeah. for me to face down <laughs> I wonder if you guys agree. I, I think I've mentioned this on the pod before, but like the addition of Clothis makes me feel like I'm at least even in the dredge matchup. And then especially post board, I'm particularly favored because I have additional graveyard hate. But like, I feel like Ponza is probably one of the matchups that, that dredge hates to see. Almost certainly because you can take them. It's like they only have two mana and you take them off a piece of their mana early. That's their really relying on like top decking another land. Um, like I faced that, that sort of rogue red, white land hate deck that's coming back into style. And they took me off of my second land really early um, playing that sort of symmetrical land destruction spell on their turn two. And I wasn't expecting it. And, you know, I'm just stuck there top trying to top deck a second land. And that's a bad place to be. Like you're just, your, your tempo is shot. You're way behind on curve while they're they're developing their spells and and their board, and I think that that's similar to uh, Ponza for sure. And like you said, like Clothis can pick and choose cards, and frequently Dredge is like, okay, I have a single Dredger in the graveyard, and I need to get to my draw step and hope it hits. And if you can peel that out of the graveyard, then you might just stop their entire game plan. Let's talk a couple about a couple of other cards that are new from Theros Beyond Death. Now, I didn't face these cards down, but I'm curious to see if you feel like Soul Guide Lantern is a reasonable or different card to play against versus uh, Tormod's Crypt and Relic. Uh, let's just start with that one. What do you think about that, Shane? I don't really care about Soul Guide, Soul Guide Lantern. I mean, it's like, it's effectively like a one and done type thing, right? It's just like, it's just relic. Yeah. It's just relic. So I don't think it's effectively different. And I also don't think it's like such a great card that you're, it's being played more main deck. Mm-hmm. 
So it's like, it's sort of six of one to me. Yeah. It's just another piece of artifact. Low casting cost one shot. And then cling to dust also seems like something that is like, okay against dredge, but not really as good as some of the other pieces that we've talked about for graveyard hate, because it's so targeted. Like cling to dust seems great against Uro to me, but not against something where you might put four targets in the graveyard with one dredge activation. And then they're just kind of like, well, I might get two of them. What do you think? So I think the thing about cling to dust is a people, especially like Grixis shadow or other black decks will like just sometimes have it game one, just cause it's got like a bunch of random utility and, and it's a cantrip. So like it has a decent fail state, but I think it's one of those cards that you hold it until like your dredge opponent triggers something like creeping chill or prized amalgam. And you kind of like get them when, when they've like, uh, revealed what they're doing ultimately. True. But the problem I would feel with this card is that you generally, the turns that are really good for dredge are where they get four triggers going off. And then you get, you get to respond to one of them with, with cling to dust, but it's not, it's not that great when someone goes like Narcomoeba creeping chill in one turn and then they get prized amalgam, prized amalgam and silver smoke ghoul back on turn two. It's like, well, that was moderately helpful. I got one of my one choice to get rid of, but it's, it's, it's kind of a lot to, to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I think it's your point. I think Stan is that it's a card that some people can play main deck that will probably cost you a couple of percentage points. Right. But like I said, I also do agree with Dave where it's like, if, if dredge is struggling and you like, you need like that one, like you need that ox to keep hanging out or you need to have your creeping chill trigger in order to trigger like three silver smoke ghouls that have been, you know, sort of lingering in your graveyard and they take care of that uh, creeping chill. Then you're like, well, poop, like I don't get all those cards. I don't get the silver smoke ghouls, which are going to trigger my prize amalgams. And like, there are lots of situations when you play dredge where you need something to happen to make other things happen because of the way your graveyard has become constructed in a frustrating way uh, uh, frequently. But yeah, I think it's just like, it's going to couple cost you some percentage points being out there in the meta here and there. I think the truth about this whole thing is that the old sideboard cards against dredge are still the best ones. Yes. Fundamentally Leyline of the void, rest in peace, Grafdigger's cage. Those are still the cards that are the ones that really shut the deck down. Yeah. And that that's what makes you hard mull for like a nature's claim in your opener or like, you know, or play your, uh, your ancient grudges to try to hit the, hit the, hit the graph diggers cage or like really, Oh, you can't hit graph diggers cage with ancient grudge. You can hit, uh, with shenanigans. You can. Right. All right. We only have like 12 minutes left because we're so good at talking about stuff. Let's talk about playing this deck. And I'd like to hear actually Stan and Dave. I want to hear more from you than from me. Cause to me, it honestly felt, it felt pretty similar to me yeah i liked it i thought it was fun i think this deck is probably a lot easier to play online than in paper just because like mtgo keeps track of everything for you you are literally never missing a trigger um and it's just like it highlights the cards in your graveyard that matter or have flashback or whatever right i mean 100 percent. i i worry about playing this deck in paper right. the same way i worry about playing storm in paper it's just like you had better have a big old coffee before you show up to a tournament with dredge right so that you're just like on it you should have a list or something of just like <laughs> stuff i can't forget 
when I'm playing, like, I don't know, get a tattoo. Don't believe his lies or whatever. Like, yeah. So, so like super fun to play, but I did feel like there were times where I kept good hands, but there was really nothing I could do and lost anyway. And not just, not just because my opponents had hate cards, but because like my dredges were bad or you brick or yeah, you just brick. And like, there are just a bunch of turns where like the random number generator was not on my side and my, my Shriekhorns didn't do anything. My dredges didn't do anything. My cathartic re- reunions barely did anything. Yeah. I feel like this, the deck can high and low roll for sure. You guys like slot machines? <laughs> Not really. I'm, I'm honest question. That's what I felt like when I was playing this deck is that it felt like I was sitting down and I'm like, I am going to play video poker for the next hour and just like see how I roll. And I'm going to, I know most of the plays. I'm going to keep all the cards of a Royal flush is just, just give me some top end and then kind of like go from there. It's a bad, badly described analogy, but you know what I mean? Like it felt no, very, it, it, it does, especially online. Like I, I've played this deck a lot more in paper than online and the mechanical working of the cards, like when you're dredging and stuff like that, I think sort of like obfuscates the randomness in like a little bit of a way. Like it makes me feel like I'm doing something even when I'm not playing this online, everything happens instantaneously and you just sort of see the results and you're like, Oh, I have, I have another dredger to click in my graveyard. Oh, or two more cards appear to my hands because those are the natural draws. Like, it's like, you're just like, Oh, well that happened. And it, it does sort of make it feel more random and more like a slot machine. A cherry, cherry bar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's not, a, I don't think that's like a pro to the deck by any means. I don't know if it's a pro or a con. Like some people enjoy games of chance that are games of chance. And like, that's fun, you know, to be like, click, 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 click 20 power. Yeah. I I will say like that element of the deck, though, it didn't like discourage me or, you know, impact the fun I had playing it. It made me a little surprised by how much Shane likes it because Shane loves making decisions when he plays magic and this deck does reward very good decision making it rewards discipline but there are times where it's like you can't decide your way out of it yeah i think the going back to kind of the question early on which is like you know who is dredge for and like what's like why people enjoy dredge i think it's like there are the random elements and the controllable elements and they sort of overlap in some ways right like the entire point of the deck is like to figure out how to dredge the most, right? Like, how can I see, how can I get the most cards into my graveyard that hopefully do something for me? And that, in a lot of ways, is controllable mm-hmm. by the way that you choose to play the game out or sequence a few turns in a row and what you dredge back. Like, do I dredge up a life from the loam here to then get some cards back into my hand and then cycle like another cycle of forgotten cave? Or do I do like a dredge five off of the stinkweed imp? Yeah, I definitely don't want to make it sound like what I was saying a minute ago is that this deck does not require skill to play. I mean, it's magic. Everything requires some skill, right? But this is one of those things where we also have to acknowledge that not only does everything require skill, everything requires luck to do really well. And that's just what magic is. And it's just very bold faced on this deck. Like sometimes you just run bad, but capturing that last 15% of the value in the deck by 
knowing how to navigate a, a uh, situation like you were just talking about, Shane, is like, that's really where it's at. And so if you are into like the micro of the micro, like mostly running on a script a lot of the time and then being like, okay, this is a point where I actually get to make a huge decision that's going to push me into a higher value bracket or a lower value bracket. Like that's the kind of gameplay that I think Dredge has that's cool and interesting. We, there's people who are known as like Dredge masters. Like, you know I mean? Like of the like Sodic is one of the most well-known, but there are others and there are reasons that these people can be considered that because they know the deck and the lines and the sequencing and the ways to maximize every point uh, to get that, like you said, they get those extra 15% here and there. Can I ask you a question though, Shane? Please. What do you think is the difference between this deck and Storm? Like gameplay wise, you, you hate playing Storm. You like playing this deck. For me, they're somewhat analogous as far as gameplay style goes. I like combat. Okay. I like creatures. I also like the physical manipulation of the cards, which I guess I could probably get the same difference with like some dice or tallying up mana, but it's not quite the same. Stan, you have thoughts? I don't think it resembles Storm because Storm is about the economy of actions. Dredge is about the economy of triggers. Your your deck just like does more things when you set it up to do more things. But like Storm, you you have to decide how you're going to win and you have to like pick the literal right cards with like your gifts ungiven dredge you just have to like pick a good opening hand and then hope like the rest kind of does itself and then you find like your your line or you have like you set up a good uh conflict right at the end yeah i feel like i understand the advantages this deck is trying to create more and they're more obvious to me like you know the size of my graveyard and the cards in it or the bo- the battlefield that i have created or the cards in my hand and how they synergize with the cards in my graveyard. Like I, I can understand those. And perhaps that's just a benefit of practice and reps. But um, I, that's just kind of like the, the advantage bars. I understand more. I'm out here playing the game. You're talking about practice. <laughs> All right. We got to close this out. We're running out of time again. What's the parting <laughs> thoughts here? How long before one of us non-dredgemen spend a hundred dollars to finish this deck it's already well, in it's already in the post coming to me it's gonna take three weeks to get here but really not nah, no i mean I, i'm exaggerating a little bit but i was already talking about buying the cards for it when i went to the card shop on this weekend i played one league with it and i was i looked up the, my price on goldfish and i was like it's like 80 dollars for me to finish this deck and i think that i have a couple of life from the lums in my trade binder from opening a box of ultimate masters that I don't even log to my collection. So yeah, I think it's like, yeah, I'm already trying to buy it just to have it to, to have around because I have the lands. I probably have like a couple English copies of like prized amalgam. I can just send to you <laughs> English, right? You mean British English, right? <laughs> amalgam is spelled with an, a superfluous U. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my sort of final thought is I think that it's important to acknowledge what isn't popular in the meta right now. And that's like Amulet Titan, a terrible dredge matchup. It's Storm, terrible dredge matchup. Ad nauseum, terrible dredge matchup. Even like Devoted Druid decks aren't that popular right now. And so like this is the kind of environment where you just kind of want to look at the naturally bad matchups and uh, dredge doesn't face too many of them right now. And like I think it's kind of favorable. Like Burn is pretty good for dredge. I think prowess is quite good for dredge. 
Um, I think a lot of, I think, I mean, like Tron's like, okay, Etron, I think is slightly favored for you. I think there's a lot of just sort of natural factors that make Dredge a pretty good choice. And games two and three are always more of a challenge, but your game ones are just as easy, like, you know, as maybe Affinity in its prime. Hey, as long as you talk about matchups, I'm curious, like, is blue-white control like not that bad of a matchup as I think it is. Like whenever I got paired against blue eye control, I kind of felt like if, unless they draw their hate, I'm just going to win eventually. And it's like, unless they draw their hate or unless they get a batter skull on the ground, but like, I don't care about counter spells. I don't care about Supreme verdict. And like, that's it. I care about like, I care about my cathartic reunion getting spell snared. Yeah. Yeah. It's not great, but yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's terrible. Like it's one of those things I actually haven't had a lot of experience with it recently. Like I played like 12 or 13 matches this week of dredge. and I didn't face blue white once. Well, play some more matches, Shane. I'm gonna, it's one thing I do like about dredge is how fast it is to play online. It is outrageously fast. It's some of the fastest magic I've played in a long time. Awesome. Well, it's a sleeve from me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's very powerful. Blue leaf plus for Stan. All right, this was fun, Shane. Thanks again, Bob, for asking us to do this episode. This was my first time piloting Dredge. And like, I learned a lot. If you're the type of person who hates playing against Dredge, but you have access to mana traders, or maybe you can like borrow your friend's copy of this deck, you should play it because you're just going to learn so much about where the vulnerabilities lie and how hard it is to pilot and how often it whiffs that it really brings this deck down to earth and... At least for me, it, it doesn't really feel like a boogeyman anymore. Boogie person, if you will. But that does wrap up this week's episode. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in Modern or Pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down and members at the highest tier get to pick their own episode topic for us to do twice a year. And sometimes if you're in the Slack, you can even like form a petition and, and twist our arm and we'll do an episode for the people anyway. Of course, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the dive down. Sign up for Mana Traders using promo code the dive down, all one word, and get 20% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and trigger prized amalgam. Mm-hmm.